You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. My guest in this episode is Camille Tucker. She's not only a friend, but she's a professor at Biola University, where she teaches writing for film and television. She herself is a writer, director, and producer. She co-wrote the screenplay for the Lifetime movie, The Clark Sisters, First Ladies of Gospel. In this episode, Camille shares about her experience at the intersection of race, gender, and faith as a black woman of faith in Hollywood. Thank you, Camille, for joining me on the show, Intersections. You know, we, uh, I always love having conversations with you. I always glean and grow and am inspired uh, when, when we have conversations. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here on Intersections. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So let's let's dive right in. Um, let's do it. Tell us who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I did a short intro, but I want people to hear from you. Where are you from? How'd you get into writing, directing? Uh, what inspired you? Okay, yeah. So I'm from Compton, California. I like to say I'm the first daughter of Compton, or at least <laughs> one of the first daughters of Compton. Um, a big part of my story is that my father was the mayor of Compton, a beloved mayor, three-term mayor, and my brother was the mayor of Compton. And then my brother went on to be a congressman that represented that district. So, um, yeah, a big part of my story is growing up on the campaign trail and being in, involved in local politics knocking on doors, which I don't think you can really do that in these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nobody does it. They're, we're doing phone calls and saying, will you vote for my father for mayor? And I'm the youngest of four siblings. My father not only was the mayor of Compton, he was a dentist. He went to Meharry Medical School in an HBCU, met my mom who was at Fisk, um, another HBCU and moved out here and he and his brothers had a medical building in Watts, California on 103rd Street. So uh, I grew up in a family that was a very public family, a very public service family, and um, always just worked in my father's dental office, office during the summers and was always around people and at a very young age, learned what it meant to tr to serve the community, to be an activist, to care about Black people, to care about those who had less. And I really inherited that from both my mother and my father. That's awesome. So, yeah, that's <laughs> and, and I'm the youngest, so I got to see a lot from a certain view, I think, that the youngest child has. Um, there's a 10-year span between me and my oldest sibling. So I, I was around a lot of adults as a young age. So just always observing. Um, but let me tell you this, this is interesting. So um, I mentioned my father was in the sciences and then he was also a politician. He was also an associate pastor at a Baptist church. Okay. So the faith, you know, like in many black households, not as much maybe now, but a few uh, generations ago, you were always raised like going to church with your parents or grandparents and my mother had wanted to be an actress and so she was a theater arts major at Fisk but she ended up going into education because she said that there was no real opportunities for 
at the time for black women, especially she's a brown skin, a dark skin, black, beautiful black woman. Mm -hmm. And um, she said that there wasn't really opportunities, and especially she got married and started having kids. But she ended up becoming a writer and a novelist. So I look at a lot of my mother's dreams and I believe I'm the one child that kind of most embraced them and pursued her passions. Uh, I wanted to be an actress when I was a young girl and did all of the theater arts and did all of the plays and musicals. I used to sing. No, I'm not going to sing today. <laughs> I used to rap. Gotta I was know a that. spoken word poet. I didn't know <laughs> I the did singing part and, and the rapping part. My name was DJ Cammy Cam, ah. the classy MC. Um, and I did beauty pageants. I was in the Miss California pageant. I had been pursuing arts my whole life, and it was so counter to my father, because my, my mother and my father were so different, but my mother became an educator and she had a Montessori school in Compton where I grew up. And those formative years, I attended her Montessori school. And I attribute that to just my love for learning. Um, and it was a very excelled program. So those were just some of the beginnings, education, art, uh, community, civic service were big in my household. Wow, I didn't know a lot of that. You you kept a lot of that from ah. our conversations. You know, you went to UCLA, right? Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. Because your parents went to an HBCU, did you ever consider going to, did you ever have a desire to go to an HBCU? Not really. You know, the interesting thing is, I think because I wanted to go into the arts, I was trying to go to a school. I was actually a theater arts major when I first started um, college. I was an acting major. I thought okay. I was going to be a full-on actress. Okay. And actually, a funny story is I was supposed to go to American University in Washington, D.C. Yeah, and yeah. my brother was actually at Howard, so he was at an HBCU. But I actually got in trouble with my mother my senior year of high school for not taking the Spanish AP exam. <laughs> Okay. And my mother, I had gotten accepted to UCLA, and she said, you know what, you ain't getting out of my sight. <laughs> you are not going to America, and you're going to be up there at the Howard Homecoming and everything. <laughs> you are staying your little tail here. Wow. And she sent in my UCLA papers for me. Wow. Wow. That's... Little did I know, my destiny was being carved out and going to one of the top universities in the world, which also had an amazing theater arts program, but I switched from theater arts to creative writing while I was undergrad. I see. I, I wonder, yeah. I wonder, as you talk about your mom, I wonder if she knew my aunt. My aunt has, has passed away, Celeste Slaughter, um, Theodore Slaughter. They went to Fisk, and my, my aunt was, uh, they lived in the Ladera Heights area, and she directed a, a Montessori school. I think it's a Montessori school before she retired. But she was in education, and she, you know, was a director. I think at at schools in in the area. So I wonder if they knew each other. So you need to ask her. I have I'll Celeste Slaughter. I have to. Yes. I have to write that down. I have to ask her. So you know, it's it's interesting that you come from. You're literally a first daughter of Compton. You, I am. You, I like to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you come from. Uh, this political family or this, this this family your father was a mayor and so i want to i want to create some space right now before we move further and just check in with you because we talked before and during the election 
and the, and the counting. And we, we, we all know the anxiety that the whole nation or most of the nation um, right. was feeling. And I think on either side, because you, know, you really either wanted Trump to win or you really, really wanted him to lose. There was no <laughs> real in between. <laughs> right. And so I want to check in with you uh, as we enter into a, a Biden-Harris administration. Um, how are you feeling, number one? How, how are you... Uh, compared to where you were right before and during the election? I'll start with that question. I was on pins and needles, and to see how many people came out and voted, it was the largest voter turnout, I think, in the history of our nation. And Biden, um, President-elect Biden, got the most votes of any candidate. I think, was it in 100 years or ever? I mean, I think it's about 100-plus years. Yes, so... I was on pins and needles like the rest of the world. I actually voted for President-elect Biden and and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. And I, and we can get into that, but I, when the first numbers started coming in, I had a sinking feeling in my stomach because I felt that it was time for change. And I think one thing that I got educated about was we still do know, I think it's about 72 million uh, Americans voted for Donald Trump. And I felt, you know, there's a thing about seenness and unseenness. And as a black woman, I was just wondering like how many friends of mine or how many people that know me or love me or say they love me or are close to me who are not um, people of color, you know, voted for Trump. And why is it people think that that's okay when so much of his rhetoric has been so damaging to blacks and other people of color, other marginalized groups? Um, It just, it was kind of hard to take to see that first wave wave of red. Yeah. And I had to turn off, I kept refreshing looking at the numbers and I don't, we might've been texting or something like that. I had to just turn everything off. And I, and I felt God say, go to sleep, just go to sleep. And I did, I had to go to sleep at some point and just trust the process. And, you know, as Christians, we do believe that ultimately it's God's will. And I really just said, you know what, Lord, um, I've done as much as I can on my part. Um, My niece, bless her heart. She lives with me. Um, she's in her twenties. She was doing calls, you know, the last two days or so she was like, we were just like all right there, you know, with her in the mix. But I was, and I had donated to the campaign, um, to Biden Harris, but I just felt like he let it go because there is my faith in addition to my activism for, uh, black people and people of color. So, so then things changed. And I think you asked, like, how do I feel now? I actually feel very encouraged. And what I had to realize, like many people, and I think we had that conversation, which is the people who have been supporting um, Biden are people who have been wearing their mask, people who've been following the rules to try to stay healthy during the pandemic. And those were a lot of mail-in drop-off ballots, and those were counted last. And you know what they say sometimes, like they'll say, God is a God of the 11th hour. And that's what it felt like. It was like all of those votes started coming in and the tide started turning. And then Biden was flipping states that like Georgia that had traditionally gone uh, red. 
And I will say this, one thing that I really thought was about black women, Stacey Abrams getting 800,000 people registered in Georgia and just the work of so many different black women, um, the mayor of Atlanta being a black woman and um, really understanding the gravity of this situation and what it meant if we had had Trump for another four years and really just coming together and I really, and then us having our first um, woman of black and Indian descent to be, to break the glass ceiling. There's glass like all under our feet now. Yeah. Um, and, be, and she's a strong, powerful and smart, brilliant woman. And I was just feeling like I, I cried and um, I was just, just so encouraged about our future. Yeah. You know, you know, you said you cried. Um, I, I would imagine, and I imagine you felt the same way when um, President Obama won, but even more so yes. now to see a black woman, someone yes. that looks, that you look and you can see yourself. Because I felt the same way when um, Obama won. I, I mm -hmm. just sat in my office at my old, the, the church I was serving at, I just sat in my office and tears just started flowing. You know, when I was young, you see movies or younger, um, maybe college early 20s, you see movies that um, depicted, say, a black president. Usually it's a comedy or some TV show. It's just too unrealistic. Or you see TV shows with a, a Madam Vice President um, or Madam Secretary. But it seemed very far-fetched to see a black president, a black woman vice president. But it's real. Like, yes. this is the reality continue yes. continue to, to share more about what does it mean for black women to see a woman and, and, and really all women because you know I got a text from a buddy of mine he's a, a white guy and he was saying his daughter can see herself mm -hmm. as well and that's valid um, if we were to narrow it down and get very specific though you know a, a woman of color and what that mm -hmm. says about to what that statement what the statement is made to girls of color. But talk more about yeah. that, um, seeing that. Well, I read this quote that really touched me. It said, growing up, you're always told you can be whatever you want to be. But then that hope starts to dim as you get older and you confront a lot of barriers and issues trying to get ahead. But here's a woman that's overcome stereotypes and gender roles and status quo and it means that people are going to take my daughters seriously too. Wow. Yeah. And so I feel like it's one thing to say you can be whatever you want to be. Um, it's another thing to see it. The optics are crucial and critical. And that's why seeing it in film and TV can be powerful yeah. because the media is, is so powerful. But to, to have it be in reality, there are little girls. I saw on social media, I loved the post that people took of their little girl seeing the moment when she did her speech. And sort of in the frame, you would see her and then you'd see the little girl. And these were different pictures and the little girls were all different ethnicities. Um, but just seeing that image in, that, in the frame of Senator or Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, and then a little girl staring at the TV screen and showing the power of that. 
And it made me have a lot of hope for our future because quite frankly, I'm even surprised at how much racism that I've seen in people that are considered to be Gen Z millennials. Like I am shocked and I have more hope for those who are younger, who are seeing something like this now. I really hope I'm like, God, we really need to dismantle this, this, um, this systemic racism, this old, you know, 200 plus years old, deep, hardcore, it's there and it's getting passed down. And I want to see that broken. Um, but this, this really gave me hope for that. Yeah. I, I'm just thinking about the image. Um, and that's, is, is it, it makes me want to come to tears now. Um, thinking about the little girl seeing like the optics, the power of, of, of the optics, being able to now visualize. Uh, my niece, um, she just turned 13. Where has the time gone? And her birthday is on the heels of this. So she spent most of her life will have been with a black president and now a black vice president, potentially a black woman president. Yes. Mm -hmm. And a yes. friend of mine texted me and said, do you know how radically different the next generation or two generations, three generations behind us, how radically different they're going to think? Yes. Like we cried when Obama won. Mm -hmm. They cried when he lost, when, when, not when he lost, but when he had to transition oh. out. I did. <laughs> yes, I did. But that's all they know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like these four years to them is like an aberration. <laughs> like, okay. It's like a reality show. It's uh, like a bad reality yeah, show. Yeah, like that didn't happen. That didn't happen. Okay. We got Kamala, yeah. uh, Vice President Kamala Harris coming in. Okay. This now is now it's normal. That that is that is that is so wild, wild to me. Mm -hmm. How different their 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 lives will can be yeah and i do think part of the in part of the reason someone like trump who is unqualified to be president got into office is because of the deep-seated racism and for the fact of seeing someone black or a person of color in authority as the most powerful person in the world as the president of the United States. And then now, as you said, VP elect and at some point, um, she may, you know, after in 2024, could usher her right into president. Um, and that is scary for some people. Yeah. Um, but also just how smart she is, how qualified, how when you look at her trajectory and, you know, there's some people who've talked about her record when she was attorney general and so forth or what have you. But one thing that actually I am proud of is that despite some rumblings when she was first um, announced as his running mate, that black people overcame that um, and that those women and black people. But if we look at the numbers, um, black women and Latino women, we got to we got to give some shout out and exactly, some exactly. praise for that, because the, the larger numbers for black women and, and Latina and Latinx women uh, really made a difference. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, 
women in leadership, and, and I want to I want to tie the politics to the industry that you're in. And you know, because in the, in our in, in the church, in many spaces, that is unheard of. That you would that you could occupy any seat of leadership. You could have any title. There are many churches where you could be a director of something, but you can't be pastor, even though you're pastoring. Yes. You're pastoral. And I've told many people the the word pastor is not a gender specific word. And if we need precedence in scripture, as my old pastor Bishop once taught, then we can go to Rachel, who was a shepherd. She was doing the same thing that David was doing. That's good. Right? Um, Also Phoebe, right? Yeah, yeah, Phoebe. Phoebe was an evangelist. Yeah. Dorcas was an evangelist. You can go to Deborah. Uh, Mm-hmm. Deborah um, was a leader. Deborah uh, was the judge. Exactly. For a period of time, which was the leader of the Jewish people. Yeah. Yep. You can go to um, Priscilla mm-hmm. and her husband, Akula, who they both discipled Apollos. Mm-hmm. And if you know scripture, where the name, the order of the name speaks, can speak of prominence, you know, Paul. And Bar- uh, it was Barnabas and Saul. And then when Paul came into prominence, it was, became Paul and Barnabas. Like mm-hmm. that sequence shows a, a prominence. And at some point you see, in scripture, you see Priscilla and Aquila. You see it both ways, mm-hmm. which, which means that they shared that, that role. Mm-hmm. And some say, some scholars believe she may have even been the more um, skillful when it came to teaching and, and doctrine and things of that nature and, and sharing yeah. the faith. But I, and, and, and I share all that to say not everyone holds that position that women should be in, in, in leadership. Um, I, I don't hold that position. I believe I champion women in, in all forms of leadership and everywhere. But now we see the glass ceiling, as you said, broken glass is, is under our feet. Do you see the same the same thing happening, and I know there's some names we can pull out, but overall, do you see the same thing happening in Hollywood? Yeah. Like, is there a, a, an equivalent to Vice President Kamala Harris in the industry? This has been the year of the black woman, 2020. Okay. 2020? Okay. There was a lot of things you did that we could leave behind. <laughs> <laughs> but you sure were kind to the black woman. No, I would just want to say, you know, all jokes aside, like actually, and I think that there's been kind of a reckoning and I think that there's a shift that we're seeing. Um, And not to say, I mean, I, um, first of all, I want to thank you and affirm you for um, just even affirming black women in ministry or not black women, women in general in ministry. Um, That's so important. You're welcome. I think that's really important. Um, But... I wanted to say that there is something happening where roles that traditionally have been held by white males in the top places of film and TV this year alone. I'm going to tell you a few people. So Channing Dungy, Channing Dungy was just named the chairman of Warner Brothers Television Group this year. Wow. Lena Iboku was named chairman of Universal Studios Group. Alana Mayo was named president of Orion Pictures. Tara Duncan was named president of Freeform, which is 
Um, I, I'm sure you're probably familiar with Freeform. It used to be ABC Family. Okay. Nicole Brown was named president of TriStar Pictures. Kathy Busby was named EVP of TriStar Television. Tina Perry is was named president of OWN. Michelle Sneed, president of Tyler Perry Studios. And Vanessa Morrison, president of streaming at Walt Disney Studios Motion Picture Production. I don't. I didn't count how many women that was, but literally all of these brilliant and nine. capable black women nine were advanced to president position at major film and tv companies so wow wow um and when and you know and you, part of my story is that when I graduated from UCLA, my first job was as an assistant at Walt Disney Studios. So I worked in Touchstone Movies, which was the feature division, the live action film division. And I was an assistant to the executives, to an executive there. But I just want to say, you know, at that time, some 20 years ago, and I was only 12 now, um, <laughs> some 20 years ago, there were no black executives. You know, I was an assistant. There were maybe some lower level management or some trainees or assistants, administrative assistants. There was no one at the seat of power in at Disney where I worked. And I could look around at some of the other studios and again, see the same thing. So to see this now is just um, it's it's breakthrough. It's powerful. And as you mentioned, there are other filmmakers and content creators like Ava DuVernay, Shonda Rhimes, and others, uh, Lena Way, who have deals and um, have lucrative deals to create content. But the one thing I wanted to highlight for you was that these people are actually in the decision-making process. They're the ones who can give filmmakers deals, who can give TV creators deals. And so that is super important. Oh, that's huge. Because we 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 main we namely we mainly hear about the Ava DuVernay's. Right. We the Chandra Rhymes. We we hear right. about their big deals. Mm -hmm. We don't hear about these women behind the scenes right. that are now if calling shots. Someone would have to give them those deals. Right? Yep. So that's important too because Traditionally, it's been pretty much all white males, some white females, making the decisions on who to give deals. So to see these people behind the scenes, it's not always about you have to be that writer or the director. You really need people in the boardrooms at the content networks, like the, the content created networks, um, the networks, the studios, and the production companies that have the funding, that have the distribution, that's where we need to see more faces of color. And quite frankly, we need more Latinx and Asian American representation there as well. Absolutely. And other marginalized groups. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing those names. I think it's important um, that we understand what who's who's at the table. Yes. And it's not just, yes. and it's almost yes. like when you watch sports, you're, you're, we're blown away by the athletes that are making so much money and have so much influence. And we forget that there's still a struggle with general managers and 
presidents and those in executive positions. We don't know who's behind the scenes making the decisions. And the same thing for the industry. So it's important for people to understand, to know these names, that these are women of color, these are black women. I would imagine they're all black women. Or these are women yes. of color. All of the ones that I just named you are all yeah. black women. So these are black women that are at the table. That's why I said this is this is a year. This is like <laughs> This year has been a gift it's to black women. It's just been like, here you go. <laughs> I want to come back to that statement, too, because you said all the things that's happened over this year, but it's been a gift to black women. I want to come back. I'm probably going to end on that. I want to come back to that. Okay. Um, I think there's something powerful you just, that you just kind of brought to the surface for me. But th this show is called Intersections. Um, so I want to talk about the intersection of being a woman, African-American, and being a Christian while navigating Hollywood, okay? Mm -hmm. What has been your greatest challenge or frustration living at that intersection in Hollywood? Well, you know, it, my story is a little different. So I know that some people um, have different frustrations with Hollywood in terms of access, or maybe they feel I've been writing for years or directing for years, and I've never gotten an opportunity. So let me give a little context and we'll go back to, and this will be like the second part, because I mentioned when I graduated from UCLA, my first job was as an assistant at Walt Disney Studios. And I, a fellow UCLA alum and I got together. Um, her name is Kim Green. We, we were not film majors. We were both, she was at NBC as an assistant to a producer. I was at Disney as an assistant to what's called a creative executive, the person who reads the scripts to determine whether they're going to get made or not, but is more of a lower level manage management. And we said, you know what, no one's going to give us an opportunity. Let's make our own short film. So we made a short film called Sweet Potato Ride. And um, this was the time around the LA, uh, the insurrection. And in, in 92, and we were still shooting on 35 millimeter film at that time. <laughs> <laughs> now everything is digital. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we pulled off a feat to do this film that ended up capturing the heart of a lot of people. We had a screening, a premiere, film premiere at the Baldwin Theater, which was at, no longer there, but it's over there on La Brea and Rodeo. And 600 people came, including John Singleton and Mr. Bill Duke, who was our executive producer, Keenan Ivory Wayans and a lot of other people. Um, Diane Waters was there giving us a, a proclamation. And um, it was an amazing evening. We had invited literary agents, which most people need to get an agent to kind of get their material to the industry. And we signed within an agent within like two weeks. And our career took off. Um, we, within that time, we had not written a screenplay before, a full length screenplay. Like we had done little shorts and we had done the short that got us, you know, that we premiered. Um, it was very well received. It ended up playing at the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, we wrote a script that was basically an African-American telling of My Fair Lady or Pygmalion and met Robert De Niro at an after Oscar party. I went up to him and I said, Bobby! I had heard that his nickname was Bobby and he thought he knew me. He thought I was a different filmmaker based in New York. And he said, get your script to, you know, my production company. 
and our agent sent it to him and he became the producer on the first screenplay that we sold. Now, really? mind you, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. It's crazy. It's a crazy, I feel like it, when I look back at it, I see God's fingerprints all over it because yeah. there was no way that I could have, or my former writing partner, Kim Green Williams could have orchestrated that or anything. Just every step of the way from Bill Duke coming on board our short film to getting the agents to seeing Robert De Niro. And um, in fact, he was with Penny Marshall. I don't know if you know who Penny yeah, Marshall. Yeah, is. Yeah. They were getting into a limousine and I called out his name and he could have just been like, who is this crazy woman? Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, we sold the script and the script's sold to a gentleman named Mark Platt, who was then head of TriStar, who's also like the producer of La La Land and a lot of other great films since then. And we became kind of the darlings of Hollywood. Um, as, as next thing I knew, we were in Variety Magazine, we were in Premiere Magazine, we started doing a whole bunch of press. I had an amazing publicist named Mark Cheatham. Mark, yes. <laughs> a genius and one of the big things was that he got us a story in the LA Times um, in the calendar section, a huge like photo uh, story. It wasn't just like some little article um, that was talking about how we didn't have a lot of money, but a lot of vision. And so all of those things together just made my entrance into the business just so different. Okay. I will say one of the biggest frustrations for me because at the time, all of this was happening. It was like a Cinderella fairy tale. Um, one minute I'm a secretary at Disney, the next minute I'm going back having meetings and seeing all my friends who were assistants there. And I'm coming in to meet with the executive. It was surreal, Wow. but it was a blessing. And to be honest with you, it's what led me to my faith because I mentioned that my dad was an associate pastor in the Baptist church, but I really didn't have the faith of my own. Yeah. Um, when we sold a number of projects and they didn't get made because sometimes the studio will buy a project and put it on the shelf. I think that was a big frustration for me. Mm. It sent me straight to my knees and made me say, God, what is happening? Okay, God, like, I know you're there. I know I was raised in a Christian household, but for real, what is going on? And I feel like the answer just was calling me into a deeper, God doesn't answer that way. He's not like, huh, oh, I'm going to give you the answer right now. So you just run off and like do whatever you want. It was a slow, um, it was a, a very measured conversation that led me to go to Faithful Central Church and sobbing at the altar, Been there. just say, <laughs> I give up. Yeah. I give up because I couldn't make it happen on my own in the professional world. Um, but I needed God. And I actually walked away from the business for a bit of time, the entertainment business for maybe about 10 years. And that was when I got my master's at Fuller Seminary. And there's a God thing there too. I want to get back to your question, but let me tell you, my dad was going to Fuller Seminary when he died of cancer. Mm. So there was this full circle moment when I was like, what am I supposed to do that something called me back to Fuller and said, get your master's in film and theology. And I ended up doing that. So I really, when I look back, can't complain about 
the industry because the industry was very kind to me. But um, it is, I. but if you look at it, like getting to a certain point and not getting your movies made and like selling and having all this hype and stuff like that, but then it's like not coming to fruition. I think there was a spiritual aspect of that and it was inevitable because it was part of God's plan for me. But one thing that I will say is I think that um, you give a lot in the entertainment industry. Um, you have to put so much into your craft, into writing, into directing, into producing. It's a very consuming um, vocation. It's a very consuming profession. And so when I look back, I sometimes think that I missed out on some parts of my life by having such a passion for this calling. And I know that, you know, I do believe that this is what God wanted me to do, but I saw people getting married, having families, having more work-life balance, and just like having a life. Whereas for me, I was just always driven by the deadline, always driven by perfecting my craft, spent a lot of time by myself. And I have, and then let's talk about like as the black woman thing, you know, for a lot of black women, we look and we see intelligent, educated, you know, smart, funny, um, dynamic black women who are single. Um, they haven't, not that a relationship defines you, but where um, it's almost like just some of the times that wholeness of what it means to have a family um, is, is, is a more complex, is more complicated. And, um, and I think that's been like a frustration for me as well. Um, but I think that black women, um, and I'm speaking of black women in general, I mean, I think, I mean, specifically, even though I do think that the industry in, in general, like whoever's in this entertainment industry, there's a lot you have to give. Um, but specifically for, you know, someone like me as a black woman, uh, I think that they've had to look to define their world and their life and the way that it's going to look in different ways. Um, sometimes some things like I have one friend who wrote a book about being a single mother and adopting children because she wanted to have a family. And she didn't feel that that, that mate was going to come or was going to happen. But did that need to stop her from, you know, from the desires that she had to be a mother and to have a family. And I look at models like that and I'm like, okay, people, women have had to start to figure out different ways to define their happiness and define, define their wholeness. I think it's kind of interesting because uh, Shonda Rhimes did that too. She, you know, she adopted two children. You know, mm. and she's a powerhouse just TV producer. Yeah. But I don't know. It's just, it's just so interesting. Um, but I do feel like it's very consuming. And I looked up and I look back and I'm like, wow, so many years have passed and I have like given blood, sweat and tears to this uh, profession and to what I believe is a calling. But I sometimes wonder if I missed out on having a more balanced life. Yeah, yeah. Your, your story is unique. Um, and it's actually similar to me when I think about um, coming into ministry. Like there are these things that have happened that I could not have orchestrated and things just happen really, really fast. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to happen for everybody. But right. if I broaden out and I think about the industry as a whole and other people's experiences that I've seen and, and that I observe, 
there's some frustrations I have with the church world. Can you think about when you step back and broaden beyond your experience and experiences of many people that you know, what may be the challenges and frustrations that the group feels, but also is it more challenging to be African-American, to be woman, a woman, to be a Christian or some combination of the three? Which is more challenging when you step back and just look at the whole <laughs> experience? I sometimes think, well, that's a really, really, that's a tough question, I think. But, you know, when you when you talk about like the church and maybe even just frustrations with the church as a whole um, and what can be difficult, um, first of all, in the entertainment industry, I don't there are more Christians who are in entertainment. Um, one part of my story is that I am a professor at a Christian university and I teach screenwriting and I see all of these a whole new generation of content creators who are Christian, who are getting into the entertainment industry. We may not always know who they are, but they're there. Um, and as a woman, I kind of express, you know, some of the things that I've struggled with just as a woman, um, but as a black person, and then now we'll also look at the church. I think that the divide um, between the church, between white evangelical Christians and um, people of color or black people who worship Christ, who are Christians, who are believers. That's one of, that's actually really one of the most frustrating things for me. In the industry so, or in the church? Um, actually, you, you will find it in both. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, you'll find it in both. In the church is what I was speaking about. Okay. But it even translates like, when I got to Biola and through several other groups of Christians in entertainment, because um, there's 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 groups of people you know who meet. There's always different groups, like-minded people or people who get together to fellowship to support each other, or what have you. Yeah. So I often felt I often found that those groups or the people that are kind of networking, supporting each other, maybe having prayer group or whatever, or get together and talk about, you know, the entertainment business, how can we pray for you? How can we go support? They're often very um, segregated. They're often very, you know, there's um, in some of the ones that I went to, like there's one or two like black people there. Um, in th those, you'll meet people who are in the camps of maybe doing films at OWN or BET or with Tyler Perry or what have you, or in uh, the African-American community. And then there's like a whole different section of white evangelicals who are in entertainment as well. And so that I would say is a mirror reflection of the church as a whole. Yeah. Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. you are, you are. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I got to Biola and started teaching at an evangelical Christian university that I, d I started to kind of go whoa whoa like we're very segregated in the church like not intentionally like we like it was before the civil rights movement but and I don't know if it's if it can be kind of culturally you know I black people worship differently 
Um, and I think that some churches are trying to make inroads to be more diverse. Sometimes part of the problem might be also going back to what I what we were just saying about the studios. It could be in leadership. Perhaps there are no people of color in leadership guiding that conversation or that discussion. So you think? it really affects <laughs> it really affects how it would trickle down to membership or those that would be drawn to the congregation or those would, that would feel welcome in the con congregation. You know, but the truth of the matter, culturally, though, and I don't really know how you solve this, like music, you know, and worship styles and things like that. They can be different along ethnic lines. And we want to have cross-cultural worship and cross-cultural like belief um, and just like fellowship. But I don't know quite know the solution to that. But I know that it definitely my eyes got open to it there, because to be honest with you, I, I, like I said, my dad was like one of those like Southern Baptists in an all black town in Compton. So that was my childhood experience. And then like, I did not really have a faith. Once I got to like college and like high school and college, I was kind of doing my own thing. So what they would say, wilding out. Oh yeah, that word. <laughs> but when I got into the professional world and I worked at Disney, have to remember it the entertainment industry particularly at that time was predominantly like jewish so you couldn't even really say i couldn't even really say like oh i'm from a christian background or whatever like i again i wasn't really identifying as christian at that time but um now they even have bible studies and at some of the studios and you can be outwardly christian because christian movies actually make money so the industry's kind of changed its perspective on christians well, I want to talk um, about Christian movies in just a second. Oh yes, we but, do. But but how do you? But that those are my frustrations, though. Just to button that. But how do you? Because you said the same thing happens in the industry, and I have my thoughts on what can be done in the church. And we talk about leadership, and we talk about worship style, and things like that, cultural expressions of worship. But in mm -hmm. the industry, how do you solve that there? Is it by having Bible studies? But but I mean, even racially, like. Is it more difficult, black woman, I mean, black woman, or Christian? Um, where are the challenges, and how do you solve the issues? Whether it be faith lines or racial lines or gender lines, pick one. How do you resolve the issue? Because you just named nine women, black women, in executive positions, decision-making positions. That's one way of making some significant change. Absolutely, absolutely. Is that the answer? Um, and maybe that's the answer with the church. Mm. Putting more people of color, women in positions of power. Maybe we need to see that type of, what is it? Because I don't play cards that much. Whether you have like a flush or something like it's like you put all your cards down and it's all. Oh, I don't play. I play spades. I, was, I was play spades. Okay. Well, I don't know. What do you play? <laughs> I have to learn how to play spades because yes. I don't want to get my black card. You don't. You don't. You don't. <laughs> but, we, we, yeah, we got to get you. <laughs> no, but you know how like when you put down it's like a royal flush or whatever. So yeah. in other words, what I'm saying is maybe we need to see that type of tsunami or wave or what have you like in the black in the church in general you know um seeing people put people of color black women black men in intentional roles of leadership 
um, and being seriously committed to changing the way that things are done, being seriously committed to change. Yeah, the, the sad part is the church is always the last to make those moves. You'll mm. see it in corporate America, you'll see it in the industry, in Hollywood, sports. The church is always the last. There's mm. something deeply rooted um, that is racialized at its root, at its core. Um, my last podcast I talked about, or two podcasts ago, I talked about whiteness and the entanglement of Christianity and whiteness, and it's deeply rooted. Um, then you got mm -hmm. maleness, white maleness too. So to give up those positions and say, we're gonna put black men and women in leadership roles, there's there will probably have to be a complete deconstruction of theology across the board. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't see that happening. I see new churches mm -hmm. coming up that are doing that. Mm -hmm. That's what I think the alternative is, rather than trying to force and, and being drained in doing that, trying to force those or the old guard to change. And I'm imagining <sighs> the same thing in Hollywood. That, like you, like you and your um, your partner, your writer, you decided to do your own short film. Yeah. And that's kind of what I, the, the route that I'm kind of taking is I, I want to do short films and maybe it's a bit of needing control <laughs> on my part, but I want to do, I want to take a similar route. I want to do more short films and have control over it and, um, and go that route rather than depend on the powers that be to bless me. And, you know, I think that that's always a great route. And I even tell my students that, you know, green light yourself. I don't think whether it's starting a new church or whether it's shooting your own film, we do not need anybody to validate us. Mm. Just because there's a thing called a studio, like if you even look at a studio, it has a gate. Why does a studio have a gate to keep people out? What's so protective in there? Really what it's saying is, the people in there are in no shade. Like I give respect to all the studios, you know, um, I intend to and hope to and look forward and love doing business with the different networks and studios. But I'm just talking about the, the mindset of the fact that the people in there are supposed to be so important that you can't just go up to them and obviously we know that that would be crazy if you could just go up and say, I have an idea, you know, do you want my movie, buy my script or what have you. But when you think about it, there are people like you remember, um, why am I forgetting his name? The one who sold his CDs out of his trunk of his car and Mas made a fortune. Ma Master P. Master P. Master P sold his CDs yep. out of the trunk of his car. There are people, so that model of, he created his own distribution system. So you don't have to wait for anyone to get distribution. There's a thing called four walling in the film industry where you work with a company or what have you and you rent out the theater yourself mm -hmm. and you could pick the cities that you think, New York, Chicago, Atlanta, DC, LA, possibly like say for me, like for an African-American audience, and I can actually rent the theater out and distribute my own film and show my own film there. So 
I do think we have to have an entrepreneurial mentality okay. rather than a just, I'm waiting for somebody to give me something. Wow. That's good. That's a good word. That's a good word. You, you, you know how I feel about Christian films. <laughs> I, I think for the most part, they can be corny and predictable historically. I've seen some terrible right. films. Right. But the, the fi a film that you wrote the screenplay to, mm -hmm. The Clark Sisters, that's a different film. <laughs> the Clark Sisters, The First Ladies of Gospel. Well, first, let me clarify. I co-wrote the script. Okay, so you co-wrote the script. always love to give love to another black woman, Sylvia L. Jones. Um, Thank you, who, Sylvia. Yeah. So, I mean, hey, and you know what? One of the things, let me just say this because I think this is so important and thank you for the kind words. The Clark sisters came from the hearts of black women. If you see the protagonists, the main characters are black women. And therefore, one thing I think that sometimes Hollywood quote unquote gets wrong is, I wanna tell this story about, you know, whoever it is, um, any political, Nelson Mandela or what have you. And often it is, and it has been in the past. Again, things have been changing, I would say probably really a lot over the last five years. Um, and we'll talk about, I know Oscar so white and all of that, but um, seeing people actually authentically writing from their own experience. So we were black women writing about black women. A black woman director, Christine Swanson, knocked it out of the park. Yes, brought she her did. whole soul to that movie. Yes, she did. And black women producers who fought for the content creators to be authentic. And when the Clark Sisters, the First Ladies of Gospel came out, and first of all, I'm just so honored to be the co-writer of that amazing piece about the Clark Sisters and love them, their, their body of work and music. Um, authentic was a word that I kept seeing on Twitter. Authentic, authentic, authentic. So I think that's something to think about too. You know, we write from our, our space. We write from our own life experiences. We draw upon our own life experiences and we bring our authenticity to whatever we do. That, that's not to say, and I wanna be very clear, that doesn't mean that I can't write something about like an Asian American person or mm -hmm. Latinx or that someone who's Latinx couldn't write something about a black female or male. Yeah. And I think that we should, all writers should be pushing themselves to go outside of their boundaries, you know, of who they are or their own experience. But I think that if you are going to write about someone who's a different ethnicity or a different culture, you first of all have to step to it with a lot of respect. Yes. And a desire to truly absorb yourself and pull from the people who have the authentic stories. And oftentimes that's not the case. Um, and so I think for this one, the reason that that film strikes so many chords with so many people is that we wrote from our own life experiences and the places that we had touch points with the Clark sisters. Like for example, I come from a very public family. They were with Dr. Maddie Moss Clark and always on the road and always having to present. It was five daughters who were all different and unique in their talents. For me, always going to events that my parents had and always having to speak to adults and there's four kids in my family and we had to know the right things to say. We were encouraged to be competitive and to 
have our own unique talents and gifts. So that's, I related at that point, you know, and I even had, I would say not more of a connection because I really connected to all of the sisters when I was interviewing them, but I could kind of relate a little bit to Karen being the youngest and kind of looking up and seeing things happen. Even the scene when Dr. Maddie Moss Clark and her husband, there's like, there's a domestic violence scene and it's the way that it's handled is very, um, I can't think of the word, is very subtle and nuanced. And I think it was with deference, but we know that there's, you know, some real strain in the marriage and Jackie um, experiences uh, violence as well. Um, and that was a big deal, it was a big deal. One thing I think we did was we brought a lot of things to a narrative that was quote unquote a Christian movie yes. that normally are taboo yes. that don't touch on. And it's because of what we what what our commitment was for authenticity. So there's some things that we dealt with. We dealt with the patriarchy in the black church, mm -hmm. in leadership in the black church. Mm -hmm. And that scene with Dr. Maddie Moss Clark yep. with the bishops, we dealt with that. We put it out there front and center. We dealt with domestic violence violence in marriage and in a family. Um, we put that out there. Um, we dealt with mental health, which is something traditionally in the black community and the church, mm. not to be critical, but it's like pray and it'll go away, you know, and it's not about that. Yeah. God gave us also mental health professionals. And I think we were trying to show at some point when Dr. Maddie Moss Clark passed away that her daughters were so devastated that there was a need for mental health uh, for mental health experts or mental health professionals to walk alongside them um, and even Jackie being a nurse you know letting her telling that to her sisters those were some bold swings that we took yeah um, but I do think that we dealt with like kind of sibling rivalry or like you know the whole blood is thicker than water like family strife and what fame can do, the price of fame and how it can come in um, when you're so close knit and when you just come up like little girls like that and then you get to a certain age in your life and then that that fame thing, you know, that's even a spiritual thing. Like, you yeah. know, um, what profits a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Not to say that any of the sisters lose lost their soul, but the temptation. Yeah, the tension there. To, it, the tension comes when you get to a certain level. So I'm really proud to be a part of a team that brought those issues to the screen. And, you know, you said it, you said it best in terms of the authenticity. And that's why I said this is a different film, a different film with Christian themes in it. You, you know, um, that's what it means to be Christian. But so for so many years, we've presented Christianity in terms of you have to be perfect and you have to say everything right and you have to do everything right or you're a bad Christian. No, that's what it means to be Christian. The messiness. Yeah, and, and, the and, messiness. And, yeah, and that there's a, a God that loves in spite of the mess or loves us through the mess or gets in the exactly. mess with us, you know? And that's why that, that film to me, that movie to me was so special. To talk a little bit about, and you, you've, you've already shared a little bit about the process of writing, but the opportunity, how did that opportunity come? The process of writing, going through that through that journey? Uh, maybe mm -hmm. you've already shared that. But how's it been since the success of the film, since the release and the success yeah. of it? 
I want to, but let me say one thing and then I'm going to segue into how things have been. I want to say one thing about Christian films. So some of the critique about Christian films is that they are inherently dishonest, out of touch, poorly acted, lack of diversity, lack of authenticity, and lack of beauty and truth. And I just want to say, and this is why it's so important that we have a generation of students who are actually going to film school who are Christians, who are really trying to learn about the craft. Because what Christian films try to traditionally do is actually broadcast a sermon. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. you go in the film and there's an agenda for you to see the person possibly at their lowest moment, except for it's poorly acted. So it's really hard to bear. And then they have the come to Jesus moment where they say the sinner's prayer. And in the last third of the movie, everything in their life becomes perfect because they accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I love Jesus with all my heart. But when you're walking through life, it doesn't look like that. That's why I said inherently dishonest. And so when a person sees that and they think that that's what their life is going to be, they can they can spot they can spot the dishonesty they can spot the lack of uh, authenticity the other la last thing i want to say is sometimes christian filmmakers feel like they don't want to go to certain areas and i wonder what how the bible would be redacted if we cut out <laughs> everything that christian filmgoers wouldn't go see or don't want to see you know one of the favorite my favorite films, <laughs> Christian films. <laughs> training Day. <laughs> because I'm I love Training Day and I see so much thing, so many themes in that. But we would I never consider you. that to be a film that you could use to talk about you. Christian themes. And it's a morality tale. Yeah. It is a morality tale. I am with you on that one. Training Day and there's 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 so many to tell. I mean one of my favorites that, you know, some people may have problems with, it's a little bit older, is The Color Purple. Yeah, yeah. Because it has so much to do with identity and beauty. And when they say that Celie is ugly and she has to find her own beauty and even the beauty in The Color Purple. Beauty and truth. When we go to see a film, there's a different part of, our, of, of how we're interpreting the material. When we hear a sermon, it's with our head. When we feel, when we see a film, we're in, we're taking it in with our senses and with our heart. And when you block that by trying to put a message, you take away the opportunity for the beauty to speak. So I just wanted to say that. But in terms of what has happened since the Clark sisters and just my whole part writing process, um, the Clark sisters, I'm going to give you like a short story. So that project came to me in 2005. And I was co-writing just a pitch with a dear friend, Sarah Finney Johnson, and we tried to sell it and it didn't get sold. And we pitched it all around town and they said that what actresses could guarantee that this movie will make its money, meaning what black actresses can play these parts. In other words, in 2005, and this shows how much the industry has changed, there were no black actresses that they felt could green light the film. Wow. So nobody would buy it. Flash forward to 2017, a lot of stuff has changed. 
Queen Latifah, who has become a big name since then and done a lot of wonderful projects in her own right, comes on board as a producer. She and Holly Carter, the other producer, her production, uh, Queen Latifah's production company and Shaquem compare her producing partner and Holly Carter uh, hire me to write the script. I write the script and it sells to Lifetime. Mm. Mind you, this is after the new edition story had been on BET. So what we were seeing is like black audiences keep showing up and keep showing up and keep showing up. And people are like, we need to get on that train. You know, it's a business decision, but ultimately it did end up going the right way. And a lot of audiences were concerned because they had seen previous biopics that Lifetime had done, like the Aaliyah story. And I guess like maybe the Bobby Brown story and they were really worried. But again, the filmmakers with that commitment to try to get the right people to bring the material to life, to bring the script and the this, uh, movie to life made such a difference. But um, it took, yeah, 15 years for the movie to come out. First started working on it in 2005, was not released until 2020. Wow. I didn't realize, I, you may have told me that before, but I forgot <laughs> how long the endurance, the yeah. resiliency. And that's something I would say to young filmmakers. I, I sung because I teach, you know, I, I sometimes feel like people, they graduate from film school or college and they're, they think, okay, I want to sell a script. And people will always say, how do you sell a script? It's like, dude, you know what? That's the wrong question. <laughs> how do you take the first step to becoming a great writer? It's sort of like, like let's think that way first. Because it's more of a complex or even in your situation, make your own movie, start making your own movies, start building up, you know, uh, a, a portfolio. Um, but but let me back up. So um, I'm just trying to remember my train of thought and what we were talking about. Um, since then, I said, go ahead. No, no, no. Success since then, since the yeah. success of the film. Yeah, since then, um, things have just been really, really, really cool. I mean, for me, when I write something, often, you know, I do like my research first. I researched the Clark sisters. I talked to them a lot. I did a lot of research. I'll do all kinds of background work, character bios, outlines, before I even start writing a script. And so I don't just have one script at any given time. I also have multiple projects. And then a cool thing happened that a lot of people responded to the Clark sisters. We thought we were going to get nominated for an Emmy. There was Emmy buzz. It didn't happen, but uh, through a series of circumstances, I got new managers. So I have representation now and I'm actually excitedly shopping a script, a TV pilot that I wrote. That's a dramatic, uh, it's a drama thriller. Mm. People might go, wait, that's so different than the Clark sisters, but um, it takes place in Compton. It's about a black uh, woman lead who's just like solving, saving the day. And I'm really, really excited about that project. So that's kind of what's been going on with me since. And, and the success of the Clark Sisters has just opened up some really cool doors. So The Clark Sisters set records, didn't they? they or they, they were the highest rated show? We had 2.7 million viewers the opening night. It was the highest rated movie that Lifetime had had since 2016, um, which I think, I can't remember which one was 2016. And I don't know if it's changed now, but 
at the time, it was the highest rated original TV movie of 2020. Mm. Meaning it was the highest rated opening night of an original movie, not maybe like a TV series or something, but a made for TV movie. And then to date, it has had 13 million plus viewers. And the DVD just came out. So I, I was going to ask get you, to, how do <laughs> get we... Get to stocking stuffers. It's we, on Amazon. Okay. Is, is it on Amazon or you have to get the DVD from Amazon? You can watch the movie on Amazon, okay. but you can order the DVD, DVD on as well. Amazon okay. as well. If okay. you want to give it to a gift. I, I know some people that said they were going to get it for like their mothers or grandmothers, maybe some people who, you know, are not going to go. They might still have like DVDs and stuff. So yeah, that's what I watch it digitally. Yeah, <laughs> so. I haven't I haven't had a DVD in I don't know how many years. You know what? And you know what? I'll be I haven't, but I'll be ordering really? <laughs> I'll be ordering to keep my little no, it's a phenomenal film. Uh, I loved it. I was so proud of you, you, my friend, you. for um, and Christine. Um, Christine, yes. For directing, just the, the honor of, of knowing you two. And I, I felt like a brother, just proud of your success and was hoping millions of people would be watching, and they were. And everyone I spoke yeah. to loved the film. Oh, um, thank you. So grateful. It's a uh, it's a necessary film to watch. Not if not just as for Christians, but it's a necessary film to watch for all of us um, to show the authenticity of what it means to be a person of faith, um, what it means to be family, what it means to navigate the realities of the the things that we struggle with. And let me just say also, I also want to just also give a shout out to Ingenue Ellis, who played Dr. Maddie Moss Clark, because when you were saying it's a necessary film to watch, um, and she's from Mississippi, I think it's Mississippi, because I remember she was doing, yes, it is, I don't know why sometimes I forget these things, but, you know, she comes from the South, and she brought so much of, when we were talking, studying women that she had known growing up in the church, and just bringing just such power to the delivery of Dr. Maddie Moss Clark and even little nuances and things that she brought to the script and additionally just like helped to elevate the material beyond even what was on the page. And so I actually see that as a God thing because it goes back to what you said about when you became a pastor and there were things you couldn't have orchestrated. We didn't know who was gonna play the roles. We didn't know who was gonna direct the film that's only God putting together the project and making it very special. So I'm just so grateful for how it all came together, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, wanna, I want you to share one last word to mm-hmm. young women, if you wanna get more specific, women of color, and if you wanna narrow it down to black women, if you could say anything affirming, uh, speak a word to them, what would you say to them? I would just say to all young women, to all young women, I know it's so hard. I wish I could have told my 20-year-old self or 15-year-old self, you are beautiful in of yourself. God doesn't make mistakes. I feel like in my younger years, my identity was always attached to something or someone else. 
I always was a matter of if someone told me I was smart or good or worthy or beautiful. And I wanted to know the answer to that question. And I feel like I only really found my own center where I could say, you know what, whether someone takes me or leaves me, I am worthy. I am like a shining ruby or diamond. Um, and I don't mean that in a corny sense, but I feel like we have to sometimes talk to ourselves and encourage ourselves. I've learned self-talk, whether that's scriptures, I'm really just saying back some scriptures and getting centered, or even just saying, I'm enough. Sometimes I have to say over and over to myself, I'm enough, I'm enough, I'm enough. Because while we're talking today about some amazing things that have happened in my life and some blessings and some incredible career goals and milestones, I have had imposter syndrome. I have sometimes had this deep aching sense of I'm not good enough. What if they find out I'm really not smart, really not good, really not beautiful, really not funny, really not the person you want to hang out with? Um, and it's a, it can sometimes be like a hidden insecurity. So for um, maybe there's young women who can relate to that. Maybe we all have that in our quiet moments when we don't want to tell anyone or let anyone see. So just to know that you are enough, please don't let anyone, a studio or a job that you're looking for or a man or a relationship or whatever, define you. They cannot define you. We came into this world created by God for something unique and special. It has taken me years. I mentioned 15 years for a project that I loved to come to fruition and to come to the screen. So God is the one who is orchestrating your life. And um, God is the one who has given us our purpose and our calling. And I just hope that people can try to just hold on to the fact that God doesn't create mess. And he created you for a unique and special purpose. And you are enough. There's a lot of work that has to be done to, I think, get to clarity on what you're supposed to do, to feel supported, to actually see the fruit of your labor. But um, God's time is not our time. And so I just wish I had known that when I was younger, that, you know, that I'm enough. Um, and once I did, it freed me and things started just coming to me once I was really, really grounded in that I'm enough. Amen. 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 Thank you, Camille, my friend, for your time, for your wisdom, your insights, your transparency, your story, your life. Thank you. Be sure to go to Amazon. You're welcome. And and thank you. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Be sure to go to Amazon and, and look for the Clark Sisters movie. Order the DVD as a gift. Um, order it on digital and, and watch the film. I'm going to go back and watch it myself. Um, and be on the lookout for Camille Tucker for future projects, whether it's television or film. There will be more. As our good friend Mark would say, more to come. That's right. Thank you so much for having me, Pastor Dr. Phil, my friend. 
And, um, and I look forward to seeing the amazing things that God is continuing to do in your life as well. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. And thanks for joining me at Intersections. You can follow Camille on social media on Facebook or Instagram. Her handle is Camille Tuck, C-A-M-I-L-L-E-T-U-C, Camille Tuck. Or you can go to her website, CamilleTucker.com. If you have not seen the film, The Clark Sisters, and it is a must see, you can watch the movie on Amazon or you can order the DVD and own it or gift it as a stocking stuffer on Amazon as well. Please don't forget to pre-order my book, Open Wounds, on Amazon, available for pre-order right now. It will be released on February 9th, 2021. And if you haven't seen my documentary film, Open Wounds, you can go to openwoundsdoc.com. That's openwoundsdoc.com. Thank you once again for parking with me at the intersections.